0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology on the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today, we're talking to Juan Javier Rivera-Andia, editor of Non-Humans in Amerindian, South America, Ethnographies of Indigenous Cosmologies, Rituals, and Songs, published in 2019 by Bergen Press. Juan Javier is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Anthropology of America at the University of Bonn. Juan Javier... Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thank you for joining us. Before we get into the book, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work on these topics?
1: Well, I have been trained as an anthropologist, both uh, in Peru, my home country, and also in Europe, first in in Madrid. And later on, I came back to the United States before going to Peru. And uh, all of my previous studies has been always in anthropology, especially in the field of americanism and um, what I've been working in the last uh, more or less uh, fifteen years is uh, more or less always the same is I'm trying to understand the cosmology of Quechua speaking people in the highlands in Peru, not only in one region, but in two different regions that are as far from the other as around 1,000 kilometers, but that share similar, similar characteristics. Um, well, and I have at the same time been trained in Europe, then I have been also working in Peru, I've been teaching in a university there, I have been involved in different projects, always related with ethnography, um, either from the university or from museums. I've been involved in the creation for, for the first time of the Ministry of Culture in Peru, and that was a great opportunity also, along with my Uh, lecturing in the university. Um, But most of my time has been devoted to research and that was not uh, really uh, very easy in my home country. And that's why in the last years, I've been uh, enjoying a lot of uh, the infrastructure and possibilities here in Europe. When I uh, had the idea to write a book I mean, the introduction and the collection and to join all these chapters in this book was also thanks to to my European experience. It was when I had the chance to stay uh, in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Studies for uh, one year, just devoted for research. It was a wonderful place. And they also helped me to uh, invite the scholars um, I joined forces with the European Association of Social Anthropologists and they gave me together with the the Dutch Institute the opportunity to meet all these scholars some of them from South America some of them Europeans and some of them from North America so that was the beginning of the book I I could say that I dare to, to begin this project thanks to my previous fieldwork and experience in Peru, but also, and mainly, thanks to the European uh, infrastructure for research here.
0: And what were some of the original um, questions that brought the 11 scholars who were involved in the project together?
1: Well, the, the main purpose was a kind of open question. Um, in, in the current context, of what we are dealing with in in anthropology, especially in anthropology of America, we are witnessing a moment in which all the ethnography that has been done in the previous years is uh, beginning to be part of certain theoretical advances or theoretical proposals that I, as far I, I'm not really that uh, that uh, such an old scholar to I'm, I'm not i don't think I am uh, really uh, trying to 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 deal with history of anthropology of america but i I I have the impression that it's for the first time maybe that uh, the anthropology of of America especially of South America in particular is being built into a theoretical proposition that um, gives a very broad um, change, brings a, a broad change in anthropology and what is the purpose of anthropology itself? What is anthropology that, what it should be studying as a discipline? And that was very exciting for me. Um, of course, I'm, I'm thinking about the new animism of uh, Philippe Scola. And the uh, perspectivism of Viveiros de Castro, but also other uh, important contributions as those of Eduardo Kohn from Ecuador. But that, the, the question for me was, and, and, and the question that I share with this, all these scholars that came uh, to, to the Netherlands was uh, how to uh, bring back ethnography to this theoretical uh, discussions. They were, I mean, in, at, at some point the debates were very abstract and new insights from ethnography were more or less being either uh, a little bit dismissed or being very accommodative for what was already theoretically stated. So we wanted to open. We we could just do that metaphor. We we wanted to um, open the window again to to ethnography to come in, to fresh ethnography to come inside this uh, theoretical room. That was the idea and uh, there were different uh, conditions for us, it was not to, to restrict the ethnography of South America and not to divide it either uh, strictly between the classical areas Andean um, um, anthropology and Amazonian anthropology uh, but to mix both of them to, to keep a strong and um, long, weak uh, dialogue of from people from the highlands and the lowlands and including also what is um, the Chaco which is sometimes forgotten it's a huge area it's uh, it has very important ethnography inside and most of the of the what has been uh, debated lately comes from mostly from amazonian studies and the study has studies are there are important and have their their own problems but there's no much di- dialogue between these areas and we wanted to uh, put that in the front front, we wanted to 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 show that the importance of a strong dialogue between scholars that are not only discussing among within between other scholars that are in their own area of the specialization, but they wanted to compare uh, with the Chaco, with the Andes, and with Amazonia. So that was the 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 question, and that was the, the main condition. And we, if I could summarize it like that.
0: And so um, in the introduction, you offer a very compelling discussion of the place of Amerindian scholarship in this new anthropological turn towards ontology, as you've just mentioned. And so without getting too far into the technical details, maybe could you tell us a bit about these debates and some of the key concepts that emerge from there, and how how these concepts set the stage for the book's ethnographic essays that you're opening the window for?
1: Well, the... um... Yeah, it's very it's very broad, but um, in general terms, the the main uh, concern in these recent debates deal always with the with a kind of what has been called a bizarre scandal. Um, it's a very old topic in anthropology. At the same time, is how is it that the personhood to say, to use this word, how is it that personhood is extended far beyond uh, humans to inanimate things like hills in the Andes, for instance? Um, How is it that uh, life, the idea of of being alive, is uh, extended much farther the the human community and and the, the world of animals and plants to stones, and different kinds of stones. That are, that is also the case in many places in South America. And how to understand that is if is that in, at, at the, until a certain point, that was uh, understood that it is not a superstition that that category is uh, not useful. And then they began to use, to to think in in terms of culture. Okay, this is a representation that is valid for each culture for certain uh, conditions and certain uh, logical restrictions they have. And now the, the idea was, and that came also with perspectivism, that actually we should consider this extension of personhood, this extension of life as different w- ways to compose a world, and that is how the term ontologic, ontologically uh, ontology came to, 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 to be so into fashion because they began, especially uh, I think uh, Vibelus de Castro and other, fo- other followers of him, to think of this in terms of worlds. We are not dealing with a representation of culture that is different from us. We are dealing with uh, different worlds that are there to be composed and for us to to try to enter and to describe them. And that has also a sort of methodological um, concern or methodological side, which is that we need to abstain as ethnographers from explaining too much uh, of these worlds there is a, a very strong uh, caution or prudence into going too far into explanation we have to let them let these things that we find either alive or not to uh, Propose their own logical projections to project themselves, and well, that's that's something that is right now into into debate. So I I, I, I wouldn't go too much into it, but the in this scenario in which we are living uh, aside uh, the, the the terminology related with culture and the human being as being the center of anthropology and Witnessing a new moment, kind of new moment, maybe, in which it uh, is not uh, the human what is on, on the, at the center of anthropology, but these other worlds that are composed with humans and non humans that are both that share personhood and life. That we they can be stones, rivers. They can be songs also. They can be uh, icons or uh, uh, rivers or hills. Uh, and if we de-center anthropology and we turn to this uh, mix set of hybrid collectivities, how should we address this, this, uh, this new object? And with the book and All the efforts that all the scholars that came to 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 meet us in in the Netherlands, we wanted to uh, give insights from South America to a debate that now surpasses, it goes beyond uh, this this uh, continent. But uh, we wanted to to stress very very strongly that it is not possible or not uh, so fruitful to keep the debate without constantly paying attention to ethnography, to to new ethnography, because actually what has been built is based on very few uh, ethnographic areas. Um, there are many others that could complement or contradict what we are thinking is happening in South America. So it, it looks like a very um, kind of... Uh, theoretical problem, but the third third, third thing that we wanted to add was also that we cannot discuss this extension of personhood and this extension of life towards uh, non-human beings without thinking about power and all the problems with domination and, well, dispossession that are usually most of the cases these people, these indigenous peoples in South America are constantly suffering. That, And that's one of the critiques that were done to new animism and perspectivism, that they were, okay, they were highlighting and illuminating something that was happening ethnographically in, in Amerindian uh, peoples, but that they were, in a way... Uh, not paying attention to something that was very strong and very important for these cosmologies, that was the matter of power and this that they were suffering.
0: And so, So you've written previously about indigenous life in the context of extractivism in South America. So could you explain what you mean by extractivism and why that's such a central concept for understanding contemporary Amerindian worlds? And, and in particular, people's complex and changing relationships to the non-human world.
1: Yeah, well, the, um, actually, we could say that, at least in the case of of South America, particularly in the, in the highlands, but I think it it can be said something very similar about uh, the lowlands also, um, there is no, almost no aspect of indigenous lives that could uh, escape the, this obsession uh-huh. or this uh, compulsion to extract what what uh, those who extract understand as natural resources, as inanimated things that are there to be uh, used um, uh, for the profit. Um, even the 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 topic of of the first contacts between Europe and, and and South America could be understood in those terms. There there is something that needs always in every period of time that needs to be extracted. In Peru has been of course. Uh, different kind of uh, precious metals as gold or, or copper. And then it's been guano, and then it's been caucho. I don't, I don't... That's the way they, they call it in Amazonia. But rubber. But uh, they have branded, they have the stigmatization of the people, of the, even the way they are organized today in the highlands, the, the, the most isolated indigenous communities in the highlands, even the way they are organized uh, in these isolated regions are only possible to be understood because of the need to extract something and how land for them was uh, given, organized, or dispossessed from them. So, uh, extractivism is a, is a kind of umbrella term for all these activities that came uh, to interfere with in different ways with the world and with the life and the cosmology of these people. Today, as many other many chapters here, like those that of uh, Mina Opas for instance, on, or the one of uh, Cecilia Otgar, they show that many of the the key cosmological entities that that are part of, of of the worldview of these uh, indigenous people in South America, many of these key elements are actually not understandable if we don't, if we are, don't acknowledge the the extraction of different resources from their lands or from the rivers. Or, well, sometimes in, 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 these entities show that they they are they are also. Taking this extraction in terms of taking something from their bodies. So it's, it's, it's their bodies that are being also affected. And if uh, extractivism is so uh, at the core of their cosmologies, to debate about what, what is animism, what is uh, perspectivism, without paying attention to, to these activities that uh, destroy the Amazonia, the Chaco, that are currently uh, devastating you know, many parts of South America, it, that, that would be a mistake. That was the, the, the idea of, of most of us, at least, uh, that, that were part of this book.
0: So I think that brings us nicely to some of the chapters. So let's start with part one that um, is called Securing Body and Wealth and that contains four chapters. So could you maybe explain some of the main themes and concerns that tie these four pieces together?
1: There are three parts of the book. That, as you said, the, the first one is this. Uh, in this part, we wanted to, to show uh, how Amerindian people can manage, sometimes in a very... Very adverse conditions to persevere into being, to 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 still uh, uh, remain as a as a, as a people. That was the the idea. That um, what are the the strategies or the the patterns that. These uh, different, this in this case, these four uh, groups from the Ecuador, the Chachil of Ecuador, the Quechua of uh, of Peru, the Aymara of Isluga, and uh, Aymara of Bolivia, in Chile and Bolivia, how they are um, managing to to not to be completely destroyed or or, or torn apart for all the lines of domination and power that are crossing their, their lands and their their groups. In, in the case of Dransard, it was I, I like that, that that piece of Penelope Dransart because she also shows that aesthetics has an important role into these patterns of survival. Because we, we could call it like that that it's not only a matter of uh, I want to keep uh, some cattle for our community and we need this cattle to stay healthy. So there are many techniques that are not dealing only with uh, humans, but also with non-human entities that are more or less the owners of this cattle also. So we have to, to negotiate at the same time with the state, with other communities of humans, and with non-human entities like the Apus or Wamanis in, in, in the highlands. But she's, she's showing that all these uh, negotiations are uh, following also some aesthetical patterns that are into a strong, a deep dialogue with uh, other entities in, in, in their environment. And is is it's, uh, maybe maybe well is nobody is would be better to explain it as 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 Drancer herself but i will say that what he, she is, is proposing is that aesthetics can be also one of, a very important pattern for staying as a as a group for surviving as a group in f- facing other others non-human aggressions and state aggressions and the aggression of of the enterprise or or transnational companies that arrive in the highlands so marieca was marieca Sachs from from canada in 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 the case of the mountain spirits in in uh, in peru in two different regions of peru was also worried about how these uh, groups Although they speak the same similar language and they have similar environments can at the same time have very contrasted but equally efficient ways to deal with non-humans that are aggressive towards them and how they negotiate with, with, with these entities. And, and that was uh, the, the idea of the, of the, of the, of the first part of, of the book. It it's it was something. I mean, the structure of the book was not given previous to the meeting. It was something that came right after the discussions, the first discussions we have, and what were our main concerns when we finally met in in the Netherlands.
0: And one of the things i I particularly enjoyed in uh, Dresnut's chapter about cattle fertility and ritual practice was the way that she showed that these were longstanding and changing practices that have survived the colonial era. They've survived church repression. and but today and up being broadcast online via YouTube, uh, yes. so I thought that was a quite interesting way to sort of show the historicity of these things and to show how they've they've changed and evolved over time and and persisted, as you put it.
1: Yeah, it's, that's, that's also more or less transversal to other chapters also. They, are, they can be traced back to colonial sources, to ancient uh, dictionaries of, of these uh, languages, the, the first ones that were made in the 16th century, but they can also be found today online. They, they, the participants of these rituals themselves, they are interested in making re- and recording and sharing it online. At the same time, they they managed to to do it. So there is a yes, there is a a a, a history that is very clear here, and it's it's fascinating also because it's full of transformations that you can you can appreciate in, in that period of time.
0: And so, part two of the book is called cohabiting and sorry cohabitation and sharing, and these essays are gathered around the questions of how indigenous communities reproduce themselves collectively in a context of these sweeping transformations. And so, Why does conviviality or the sharing of food across human and non-human relationships take such a central place here?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's more or less accepted today that um, uh, commensality at least or you can also, some scholars call it uh, nurture, others call it uh, feeding. It depends on what is your ethnographic point of departure or what do you want to stress at the end? But there is a a common understanding that feeding in South America and in, in the lowlands, but also in the highlands produce kinship. Um, I don't know how to explain it uh, in general terms. The, when you... Go to a community as a foreigner and that an anthropologist arrive one of the best uh, forms to um, make a good fieldwork to to stay as as as, uh, as many anthropologists do for a long time involves eating what they eat but in the case of South america to if you if they feed you if you eat what they eat, these substances that are entering your body are understood as making your body progressively similar to their bodies. And that is the door to other relationships, to potential affinity. Um, Well, in the case of mother and son, or father and, and and children, is consanguinity. So feeding and eating together commensality is is maybe one of the most uh key events in the 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 man, man in, the, in, in producing a community it's when they eat together that, that they they are what they are and they become what they what they are at the end and the, the chapters here deal with that but not only with that that's that's maybe it's maybe more visible in Guillermo Salas Carreño when the, he speaks on the, on the highlands but uh, the other chapters also want to stress the problems of cohabitation it's not I mean there is this is side this side of, of the nurture in which we become uh, similar or we become acceptable or recognizable for the other but uh, in in Mina Opas or in, or in Brabek, the Mori, they, they also show you that uh, the, if there is a, a, an interference or if there is a, a lack of uh, perseverance in, in this constant uh, process of feeding and nurture, then cohabitation becomes problematic. They, you can be easily aggressed by the entities that you are not feeding enough or you are not feeding correctly or you are not sharing correctly part of what you have been hunting in the forest. And then the aggression is, is always a possibility. So how to stop this, how to negotiate that in different, either in the Chaco, as Otaegi shows, or in Amazonia, Asopas shows, is is the uh, the main concern of the second second part of the book?
0: Yeah. Could you go into a bit about more about Opus and her piece? She discusses the figure of the hand whistler in the Peruvian Amazon. So could you explain a bit about this uh, forest guardian figure and the kinds of relationships that people establish with it?
1: Yeah. Well, it's Opus uh, used the local term uh, the hand whistler, but it's uh, one variation of a. Diff, uh, more or less general figure that appears in different, different many many different parts of, uh, of the South America. Um, it's at the same time an owner, a non-human owner of uh, elements that humans need to be to be, to survive. It can be, for instance, uh, the owner of the, of the game, the owner of the sources of water, and. Your your relationships with this entity are has to be very very strict and, and careful. are they can be also ludic sometimes, but it's very it's a matter of it's a serious it's a serious thing. And what Mina Mina Opas is showing very clear here in in the case of of the in the Amazonian case is that all the 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 benefits that you can get from this non-human owner are very easily can be turned into aggression, and there is a constitutive ambivalence in the in these entities. The, um, sometimes the Christianization and the, the proselytism of different religions in South America has, at the end, uh, turned these entities either completely. Good or completely evil, but uh, in in different many still many cases, as Opas or even also Carreño, Abraham de Morì, it is clear that they keep a very strong ambivalence, and they can react very differently depending on how you deal with them. They this is there is also variation and in the cities of the hand whistler and here they can when they when they are angry or they they can come and extract some substances from your body it can be blood it can be fat or in some urban cases also it can be the eyes they can take your eyes and of your children and that's in, in the scale of all the variants of these uh, entities uh, the hans whistler that's one of the most um, how could i say maybe one of the, the clearly more, most more clearly speak about the 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 all the aggression from extractivism they are feeling but uh, in the case of uh, mina Opas. she's not dealing with urban cases. There are other chapters that are dealing with what happens in the city when this indigenous group be great, but Mina stays as his group out of the city.
0: And, And one of the arguments in the chapter is that this isn't just a metaphor or a figure for understanding the capitalist economy, but also a way to act and control the process of social change that that involves. Could you elaborate a bit on that difference?
1: The point of departure is that these uh,
0: narratives
1: or these uh, rituals that deal with these non-human entities that are aggressive and they are extracting something from either from your body or either from your community or your land, uh, when, when they tell these stories, when they act in these rituals, and also in in daily life, when they take some uh, actions that are um, done particularly to deal with these entities, it's not only that uh, they're responding or they are translating what they are, what, what extractivism is doing to them, or the state is doing to them, or the city or the metropolis is doing to them, but it's also a way to respond, to react, to to take, uh, to offer alternatives for them to deal with these entities and to these forces that are going into in, into their bodies. Um, how will I put it? For instance, the in the in the highlands there is an entity that is called pishtako or Nyakach, depending on the of the language you use, and. He, he, this entity is supposed to be a lonely man that is disguised as a priest sometimes or sometimes as a, just a normal person, like a foreigner that is walking around. And the main feature that he has is that he has a a, a kind of ID or, or a carnet that allows him to kill people by the state. It's the state who allows Epishtaco to, to kill uh, people. So he, ha- he has no problem with that. He's, he has also a special technology to do it from a certain distance. So what he does when he finds somebody an indigenous uh, person walking alone is to kidnap him cut his uh, members, cut his hair, his head and to put the body to uh, a certain altitude to make fat drop. And this uh, fat will be used for the working of certain machines that trains are not possible they cannot work they cannot go without this fat in their wheels and um, also to make some makeup for the cities for women in the cities so the pistaco has the the, the right to kill who he wants to to kill to extract these uh, materials from their bodies and when when they uh, when you find this uh, entity in the narratives of a group, is is the telling of this narrative is a form to, for this group, one of the forms they are act, activating to respond and to uh, behave as a collective that is willing to protect themselves from what is going on in their environment. So it's... It's not only uh, a translation of what's happening. At the same time, this translation can be very effective for them to uh, active certain practices and patterns that will allow them to to survive.
0: So, Part three of the book is called uh, Transformations and Slow Turbulences. Can you explain a bit what you mean by that?
1: Well, when... The idea of slow was taken from all this literature that is speaking about the the violence that is not, uh, how could I say, there to be uh, a kind of spectacle. You know, when they are, that, that also happens a lot in South America. And there is an indigenous group that decides to block uh, a road, and then come uh, hundreds of policemen just uh, just shoot at them. Um, And that can appear on the the local newspapers sometimes. But here the idea is uh, to highlight the violence that is uh, occurring every day in, I don't know, in the malnutrition of the children of these indigenous groups. Um, in the way that a teacher that doesn't think that indigenous language is uh, able to or a good to explain lessons in the school will treat these children also In, in many other small aspects of their lives There is a slow, uh, hidden violence that is constant, is permanent, is there. Um, And the idea of... uh, Well, I think in the introduction, there is a a question that is something like, is the ontological world afraid of turbulences? And that was... uh, In this this part of the book, in the last part of the book, was the idea that um, if we want to understand in ontological terms, if this is the the way to take serious what is happening among indigenous peoples today, um, then why would we be afraid? I mean, what will we not uh, include as a main component in our ethnographies the violence, the turbulences, the problems. Not only those in those groups that are part of a spectacle of violence, but also in all in all the groups that are in where violence is is a permanent ingredient of their lives, so that was the, the idea to to sh- to show this violence to to understand it as part of their cosmologies, how they are affecting the cosmologies of these people. Although it's not uh, um, a violence that is immediately visible there.
0: And one of the central questions running through the three chapters is. Um, about the adoption and incorporation of foreign powers and foreign sources of wealth into indigenous cosmologies. So could you explain a bit, summarize how the three chapters grapple with that question?
1: Yeah, well, in the case of of Jonathan Hill, for instance, when he's uh, trying to understand the the role of music among the huacuena y curripaco in Venezuela, the... The the, the the concept he lays and uh, he calls uh, musicality it helps him to to show the, to the reader how something as dancer not something that is mainly is dealing with aesthetics at the same time is a tool to reconfigure or to to create the environment and. In the case of Ivinek, uh, Cedric Ivinek in, in Rondonia in Brazil, the, he goes in a very, very little detail in, in, in his examination of the ritual songs of the Surui and compares those that has been that have been introduced by um, priests. I think it's the New tribes Mission well it doesn't matter from Catholic or Christian priest in, in Rondonia and he shows that they are adopting these songs that are dealing with biblical uh, topics that at the beginning were completely foreigner for them And but the way they are using the songs uh, in in the, the linguistic Distortions, little distortions that they are putting into these songs, and and, uh, uh, they allow them to transform what is for the priest uh, just uh, just songs for the for the mass, for the mass into devices to keep the relationship with the non-human entities that were there before the the uh, Christian priest arrived in Rondonia. Um, in the case of, of Cecilia Odegaard, it was um, very similar also to the case of the Pistaco, I already said with the problem of the fat structure or blood structure, with the permission of the state. But also, she she was following the the indigenous people from the highlands to a particular city, a big city in the south of Peru, and he was she was. Showing how all the um, the problems they have when they migrate, uh, and they live one way of life for another, and they enter into the business sometimes of uh, smuggling things through the frontier and into capitalism. It's for them. Also at the core of the of the way they deal with Apus and Wamanis in south of Peru they uh, still use and they maybe even more use the negotiations they know and, and the deal how to deal with these entities in order not anymore to to have good crops and to keep the cattle in, in good uh, shape but, to have enough uh, merchandise, and, and things to sell and smuggle. <laughs>
0: yes, please. So these are the kind of earth beings that she's talking about.
1: Yes, uh, hills. The kind of well, you, there is a, a also a question of either you can call, you can consider them spirits of the hills or spirits of the mountains. Has been traditionally said of their, if they are the mountains itself. So Cecilia is not entering into into that, but yes, you can say that the the Wamanis, the Apos, are the hills here in this
0: case. One of the things I thought was so interesting about that chapter was the way that the rural to urban migration, this kind of great um, human mobility, often requires people to participate in offerings and other kinds of relationships to these very specific and place based beings in the landscape. So could you explain a bit about how um yeah how these how these uh beings persist as people move across uh the country from rural areas to cities and and how their meanings change as the the forms of wealth accumulation that people are engaged in also change
1: that, uh, well maybe i don't, i don't i'm not sure if Olegor will will agree but i i my guess is that when the the migration the, the the act itself of uh, migrate is um, something that you can do only with the help of her beings. i mean in in not only in arequipa where she she's working for this chapter but i've seen it also in um, uh, Two thousand kilometers to the north, in the frontier with Ecuador, it was. It is very clear that when the member of a family in in the highlands, a rural family, decides to migra- migrate, migrate, or, or is just doesn't have any other option than to migrate uh, to the to the, to work in a factory in the city, the the process itself needs the help. Uh, the the strong and direct help of the you no know, ervine of of the mountain the local mountain that they consider uh, that has power over their community and the process doesn't end there once part of the family has uh, has gone to the city usually there are cases in which all the family travels but there are many cases that are in between but in both uh, at the other end when they are in the city uh, in these cases in which the hills has promoted or helped to to migrate they keep the same relationship with them and at the same time even if they are farther at the same time they, they still want to keep this relationship that makes them also periodically come back to the community foraging and join with the other members of the community. So in in a way, the hill, the local hill in the case of, of, the, of the Highlands, is what keeps all the dispersed members together, not only once per year for an annual ritual, but also in the monthly payments, or pagos they have to do to the hill when they are in the city. Uh, well, they are not completely dispersed because when they go in the city, usually they stay in the in the in neighboring shanty towns, uh, one next mm-hmm. to the other.
0: And one of the recurring presences in the book is the world ecological crisis, or the general condition of being in the Anthropocene. So how would you say that this collection furthers anthropologists' understanding of the Anthropocene in general and its incarnations in South America in particular?
1: Well, the concept of Anthropocene has been also at the same time very much used and publicized, but at the same time strongly criticized for one of the main concerns is that uh, With term Anthropocene, you are more or less highlighting um, Anthropos that is there, that has been um, acting um, actively to destroy uh, or or, uh, affect the environment. But there are many scholars that are saying, why don't we call it capitalocene? There are many other propositions. That are more uh, direct or that put the focus on what has been the main driver of the of what they consider to be a catastrophic scenario. and extractivism is part of this is one of the main component of this uh, huge uh, catastrophic uh, scenario that Anthropocene tries to resume. And in South America, as I said, extractivism is is really one of the components of the history and the current configuration of this this, uh, territory. Now, there are also states, uh, as uh, Bolivia and Ecuador in South America, that are trying to use uh, or to include in their legislation We still don't know how, but they want to include something that could be considered rights of the Pachamama, of the the nature, of the Mother Earth. Um, But in other scenarios like Peru, for instance, or Chile, that is very far away from happening. Um, But in in all South America, we could say that if... uh, if there is really a possibility to find an, an alternative or other alternatives to what extractivism is doing and the, the, the scenario of the Anthropocene, if there is any possibility, this possibility cannot be detached from ethnographic understanding of Amerindian people. There is there, possibly, different ways to relate to the environment that are not isolated, they are not uh, out of history, uh, absolutely, but on the contrary, there are ways to respond to these practices of attractivism and dispossession. And it's not that... um, anthropology and ethnography could give you a ready-made alternative. Oh, you see here, you see these people is striving, they are surviving, they are responding like this and that, and we should follow this pattern. No, it's that only comparison of different ethnographic cases could configure a a possible alternative that takes out uh, of the destruction that we are witnessing today. Um, If we elaborate in, from that ethnography, not uh, not taking uh, indigenous way of life as uh, ready-made receipts that we have to to follow. Libero uh, or, or. de Castro puts it in, puts it in, in an interesting way. This uh, South America, the people of South America, Meridian people, they have already known what is the end of the world. They they have already witnessed that. They they could then teach us uh, what, how, how to survive in that, in such a, a catastrophic scenario. So that is more or less one of the aspirations to, we have to, to contribute uh, with, with this new ethnography of South America we are proposing.
0: So to bring the discussion of the book to a close, are there any other themes or methods or topics that you'd like to highlight that we haven't touched on?
1: I would just like to, to To highlight one point, uh, the book is is, uh, composed of different ethnographies, as I said, of different regions uh, that usually don't come into a dialogue with the other, Chaco, Amazonia and Andes. And the materials we are using in this book, mostly rituals, uh, songs, uh, mythical narratives, are not used only to explain um, their cosmologies, but also paying attention and to tr- and also trying to understand the suffering and the devastation these people have. I mean, most if, if you go into the literature of extractivism, most you will find different approaches that are very important. But, the, here, we wanted to contribute with a microscopic approach that tries to show in their in indigenous terms how to deal with this uh, devastation from the cosmology of them, not only from the practical affairs, the um, um, alternatives that they can find, but also from their cosmology. It's, it's uh, a way to put into practice what um, I think Martin Holbrodt um, states in Framing Cosmologies, a book of uh, like three or four years ago, that was published three or four years ago, is uh, putting cosmology back into uh, a center of inter- in which it interconnects with all other practical affairs
0: today. So, with that, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on currently?
1: Yeah, my my main concern now is to produce a detailed ethnography of a group in the frontier between Peru and Ecuador that is neither from the highlands nor from the lowlands. They are difficult to classify. And that has been, all, all, although they have been connected with the National Society for centuries they managed to stay almost invisible there there were no no sources almost of information in the past about this group and i wanted to to show through ethnography how this invisibility was produced and um And also it's a group that, not because I I look for it especially, but it's a group that is under the threat of a big uh, open pit mining project in their lands that could make them just displaced from their lands uh, in the following years. So I want to put into conversation these two issues in this ethnography. And that's, that's my main project right now.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project. Xavier, I want to thank you for joining us on the New Books in Anthropology. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
1: Thanks to you. I really enjoyed it.